0: Yesterday was one of those days that uh, you don't look forward to. We had Jackson Bates' memorial service here. Um, Jackson is a 12-year-old boy who's Kurt Nelson and Pat's grandson. I figured out in my first 11 years as senior pastor here, we had 11 funerals for children of grace. It, it was just brutal. And, um, but you never get used to them. Uh, Jackson um, is a cool story on one level because two years ago he discovered he had cancer roughly and then he in talking to his grandfather Papa Kurt, he he came to... Literally asked questions about what what's what about life after death, and as a result of those questions, he committed his life to Christ and said, "Papa Kurt, I want you and Pastor Andy to baptize me." So it's the only time I've done a dual baptism. Kurt and I both um, had the privilege of baptizing him here, and um, you you never get used to those. You just don't. Uh, One of them that uh, really shaped my thinking about it, not because any other child is any less, but because of the way it happened was young Carson Leslie. Carson, as you know, had brain cancer, and Annette and Craig. His parents are still here. And Julie had taught Carson when he was a second grader. I, I heard about Carson early on. One of the most competitive kids I've ever been around. They had the, on Friday. They had a question cart or something, some contest in the class. And and his dad liked to remind him the rest of his life that he always wore his lucky Spider-Man underwear on Fridays so he could kill the question cart. You know, he was just, he was a beast when it came to competitiveness. And, and when he discovered that he had cancer, he, he said uh, basically, hey preacher, I want to talk about this. And I'd, I'd go by and pick him up at school and with his parents' permission and we'd go to a coffee shop and we would talk about cancer and God and life and death. And, and Carson wasn't one of those kids that would let you get by with platitudes. I mean, he would look you in the eyes and say, that's baloney. You're not, you're not doing that one on me. And so we, we did mano a mano theology together about sin and death and God and all those questions that a premature death of a good kid brings. And honestly, there are questions no human can answer. There there are things that we, the the will of God is inscrutable. There, There are aspects of his sovereign will that we have to trust him. Because as he says in the book of Job, basically, I have no responsibility to explain myself to you because, by the way, I've been here longer. God says to Job, where were you when I created everything, Bubba? Bubba is actually a Hebrew word, rarely translated. Um, and so I, I would admit those things to Carson. We, we grappled with it and we cried together and we talked about it. And, and um, one of the things he came to see is that God hates death more than we do. God hates disease more than we do because they are a consequence of our disobedience of God's perfect will. God told humanity, don't go there. It's evil. And when we did, what did he do? He he gave his son. I mean, how much more could you hate it than to give your own son to pay the price for it? That's... It's one thing to step back and say, ooh, bummer. It's another one to pay the ultimate price for the sake of our sin. So the, the reality of, of evil and death and all that that comes into laser-like focus when you, when you talk to a teenager about the cancer, the evil, the death that is possibly coming. But then another thing that you end up on is, is hope. Because when you're in the midst of facing your own death, one of the questions you have to ask is, uh, do, do I have any hope here? Does, does this go anywhere? Uh, is, is there anything that gives me joy or encouragement or, or fuel to go forward? Um. Hope is a hugely significant word in Scripture. It's not used a huge amount... But where it is used, it is used very significantly. At the end of, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 13, the last phrase, now abide these three things, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I've confessed before, even as a kid when I read that, I thought, okay, I get why faith is there because it's by faith we believe God. It's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's by faith, by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. I get that, that faith is 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 the linchpin of our relationship with God without faith there's nothing and and love I get that because Jesus said the first and great commandment is to love God and others right I always struggled as a young person with why hope made the list I thought it was the red-headed step stepchild of the list and if any of you are red-headed stepchildren that was merely a you I didn't mean any offense um But life has taught me that hope is the fuel that keeps us going. Because when you still hope, you don't want to get out of bed. When you still hope, life loses meaning. I I, I define hope as faith looking forward. Faith is immediate right now. It is the, the content of what I entrust myself too. But, but hope is translating that faith into the rest of my life and how I view life and how I will move forward. And what you discover is if faith is lost, then we say all hope is lost in the future. And, and that's where depression comes in. I, I think in many ways, a definition of trans, uh, depression is just a loss of hope and where it colors everything life becomes meaningless because, because hope keeps us going. So how does hope fit in the Christian life? And, and does hope really matter to a 12-year-old facing death? As you know, we've been looking through First Corinthians 13 and, and the, the centrality of love. I, I think there are two major chapters in First Corinthians. The first one is chapter 13, which is the ethical climax of the, the book. It is the high point ethically when, when Paul says, ultimately, no matter what else, you got to have love. And now we are walking through how he defines and describes that kind of love. But there's a theological climax in the book as well, and that's chapter 15. And I'd like for you to turn with that today, because the theological uh, climax of the book is about the resurrection. We looked at the first few verses of chapter 15 last week, where the Apostle Paul, in the context of faith, he says, It is the resurrection. The, the the very gospel message is that Jesus died for our sins and he was resurrected, and that is the content of the gospel. That's what we place our faith in. That that Jesus died paying the price for my sins, but beyond that, he was resurrected. He won. Because all of us, short of the Lord returning, are gonna die. We'll all succumb to death, but Jesus won. With death, And by demonstrating that he showed his victory not only over death but of sin. And Paul says that's, that's the content of what you believe. The most basic element of what we believe when we believe the gospel. But then he turns to the hope that comes from the resurrection. And I want you to see that with me. In chapter 15 verse 12. Where does our hope come from? By the way, one last thing. Uh, We have translated these as hopes, all things. The more i studied this, uh, it's each of these four are are two words. I've come to the conclusion that a better translation is always hopes. Because love is an action. So that love always believes. Love always hopes. And I think that will help you understand the passage better. Anyway, 1 Corinthians 15, 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he... if but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised then Christ has not been raised either you get the point little repetition here all great preachers repeat they say the same thing again they they keep saying it over and over until you hear what they're trying to repeat so that by the repetition you pick it up right What's he saying? Jesus was raised. And that's where our hope comes from. Look look at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile because you're still in your sins. uh, Victory over sin and death occurred not when Jesus died. Because God hates death. Victory over sin and death occurred when Jesus was resurrected and demonstrated that he he had life. And that's an important thing to realize, that, that the gospel isn't just the bad news of death. The gospel is the victory of the resurrection over the bad news of death. And that's what he's wanting to drive home. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost if there's no resurrection from the dead. Verse 19 is key. If for only this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. People say all the time, well, I think Jesus was a good guy. No. By the way, that's, that's why unbelievers keep looking for his grave. You know, they keep looking for the box where his bones were. They keep looking for desperately trying to remove that foundational belief in the resurrection. Because the resurrection is the demonstration that he won and that for us to look to him makes sense. And Paul says himself, if there's no resurrection, we're to be pitied. What? Poor, miserable people. Verse 29, skipping down, this this chapter is so dense, I don't have time to go through all of it. Now, if there's no resurrection, he continues, what will those do who have been baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? I know verse 29 is hard. There are multiple possible interpretations of that. I'm not going there. Look it up in your Bible. Study Bible. I'll do it another day. If I don't retire first. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead aren't raised, let us drink and eat, for tomorrow we die. The Apostle Paul says, I'm an idiot if there's no resurrection. Because I've risked my life. I, I've done crazy things for the Savior. And, and, if, and if he's just another guy that died, then I'm a fool. I'm a fool. I am so sorry. And, and in fact, he goes on to one of those verses that I always thought, I wonder if my mother knows is in there. Because we ought to eat and drink and be married for tomorrow we die. That sounds scary. But it's in the context. What's he saying? If there's no resurrection, then salvation is not supernatural. It's just another self-improvement thing. And if it's all just going to be for here and now, then hedonism makes sense. Let's party hard as we can. Because none of it makes sense. What's the inverse of that? If there's a resurrection, then salvation draws us into the eternal, which means how we live our lives, get this, has eternal consequences. Life suddenly has meaning. You wonder why there's so much cynicism right now? Because we've lost hope in things that we placed our hope in. Whether it's the institutions of church or government or people. And when when you lose hope, there's nothing to pull you forward. You don't believe anything. So why not just do drugs? Why not just do whatever you feel like? What difference does it make? But what the Apostle Paul is reminding us is if the resurrection is true, then what salvation offers is not self-improvement. What salvation is, is an intrusion in our little lives by the truth of God that he is, is working and what he does has eternal consequences and because it has eternal consequences, that means that every bit of your and my life matters. Whether other people see it or not, whether, whether it gets written up or not, none of that matters unless the gospel's true. And then suddenly the gospel has import in ways that we could have never comprehended. Verse 33, in fact, that hope becomes a motivation for obedience. So don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good behavior come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. It's the reality that our lives have eternal impact in light of the resurrection that makes obedience and quite frankly, the difficulty of obedience makes sense. Paul says, have you ever thought about why I've darn near killed myself repeatedly for the gospel? It's because the gospel... By virtue of the resurrection tells me that this stuff is about eternal life. And that makes everything meaningful. It puts my present life in a proper context. It, it empowers me not to compromise. And it reminds us that our greatest joy is yet to come. Drop down with me again, if you will, to verse 58. It not only motivates us not to sin, it motivates us to serve. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The resurrection makes serving God make sense because it matters in eternity and can i say to y'all we live in this delusion that that god does not notice and you know what we do doesn't matter or it's it's just our lives we we satan wants us to believe that our lives have no value or importance that is what he that's his message that's his message the the resurrection says no your life has eternal consequences and the sovereign God can use the simple thing of you being nice to someone as part of his eternal plan how many times have you ever heard a testimony where someone says well this person didn't know it but they said this to me at a time when I needed it and God used that to make a huge impact in my life you ever heard that I've heard it many times but we've, we've fallen into this crazy celebrity expectation that you got to preach or you got to be a missionary or you got to be on TV or you got to something else to have value. But see, that's all about us. The resurrection says, no, it's, it's about what God is doing. And therefore, God, just as He raised His Son from the dead, God can use my meager efforts to make a difference in the world. And not only make it for now, but make a difference in eternity. I have an old friend, he's with the Lord now, Ford Madison. Um, he started the Dallas Prayer Breakfast, and I worked with him in the four prayer breakfast for years. He was on the board of the seminary. I knew him there. He was an Aggie. Stop it. I'm making a spiritual illustration, and you're whooping as if somebody goosed you. What is that? Anyway, and Ford had this wonderful, wonderful reminder. We'd get off in the weeds about things, and he'd say, No, not exactly. (laughs) He'd said, we are here to be in the business of depopulating hell. And that kind of gives a laser focus, doesn't it? We're not here to make people nice. We're not here to make life easier. Those are important. I believe in them. Don't get me wrong. But 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 in the grand scheme of things, the greatest thing God has called you and me to do is, is depopulate hell. Have an impact in people's lives. They're eternal. And when you, when you understand the resurrection and the reality that our salvation is an eternal matter, then, then obedience makes sense in a whole new way. And service becomes vital in whatever opportunity God gives me. So hope is always a part of our love of God. But what about a love of others? We're going to go back to chapter 1. I keep going back to chapter 1 because the apostle is, it sets the course of the whole epistle in chapter 1. And he, he plays his cards of his motivations there. Um, remember that the Corinthian church is a mess. It, it's a mess. It, it, it's singular in its, in its messiness. It, it, it's a church that, you know, it, uh, they're just a problem. And, and the whole letter is, is addressing all of these problems. And, and you get them. And, and they think that the apostle may have written. Uh, we know have First and Second Corinthians. Many scholars believe he wrote at least four letters to them. Because he kept trying to address all the stuff that was going on in the Corinthian church. They were a mess. I want you to listen what he says about them in chapter 1. Verse 4. I always thank my God for you. Wow. Why? Because of God's grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in Him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, because God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. How does Paul love the Corinthians? It's still his hope in God. He has hope in them because of what God is and will do for them. You know why we lose hope in other people? We look at what they do. That's why we lose hope in ourselves, right? We, we see all of our brokenness. Now, sometimes we strut around pretty proud of ourselves. But in the cold light of morning, oftentimes we'll look in a mirror and say, I am a terrible mess, right? Where, where, where you think, I don't even know for sure if God can love me, much less use me. And, and it's even more profound with others because we'll give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. But quite frankly, the pews of a church are full of people that have been disenchanted with other Christians. That, that have had their hearts broken by other Christians. And so, so one of the things that happens in the body of Christ is we, we live keeping each other at a distance because we don't want to get hurt again, right? We've lost hope in people. How does Paul keep hope in the worst church in the New Testament? remembering that it's God who is at work see when he looks at the Corinthian church he not only sees where they are but he sees where God may take them he not only sees their failings he sees where God is working in them he, he not only sees their brokenness he sees what God is, could heal in them he, he not only sees how weak they are, he sees how great that God is. And that's how he's empowered to keep loving these bunch of, and I mean this with all due respect, knuckleheads. He, he, he has this indomitable hope in what God can do so that he can keep loving people that disappoint him all the time. And one of the heartbreaks of the body of Christ is that we've given up on loving each other that way. We're so self-protective and we're so aware of our hurts and we're so aware of the disappointments that we no longer are willing to take that frightful step of hoping in people and loving them even when they've hurt us in the past because you cannot separate love and hope. But what would the body of Christ, what would our church be if every time I ran into someone, I knew they not only saw me in my brokenness and my weakness and everything else, but they saw me not only as a child of God, but as someone in whom God was working and whom God could do great things through. What would it be if we became a people that believed in each other so much, not because we're delusional, but because we know how great God is? And, and what would it be if we became those people who rather than always seeing other people's weaknesses, we, we saw the grace and mercy of God in their lives and all that that could do. Because men and women, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. When we continually sell ourselves and each other short, what we're proving is we don't believe the miracle that is God's salvation. But love always hopes, not because I deserve it or you deserve it, because we serve a God who is miraculously powerful, so much so that he raised his son from the dead to demonstrate that death is dead. I'm not talking a locker room speech by a coach. I've heard way too many of those. I'm talking about that flint-eyed resolve that says, I love you so much, I believe in what God can do in you. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We are all desperate for relationships of people who, against all evidence, hope in what God can do in us. Because that's what love does. Love always hopes. Love always hopes. And the cynicism that you're being sold about our institutions, about the church, about leaders, about other people, that is is Satan's work at, at stealing that core belief that God can work in anything. Because love always hopes. Where's your hope? Where's your hope? Do you have hope in what God can do in your life? I, I, I know you know your failings better than anybody. Well, maybe your spouse but or your children, but especially if they're teenagers. But you, you know your failings, right? Have you given up hope that God can work? Have you let Satan convince you that there's no hope for you? And, and, and the people in your life, I, I, I get they've disappointed you. Uh, trust me, I've been disappointed a time or two by some of y'all, maybe once. But, but love keeps coming back with this almost foolhardy confidence that God can work. Let's be that people. Let's love that way. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you never gave up on us. We thank you that your love for us is filled with that kind of hope. And and it's because you demonstrated your victory over death by the resurrection of your son. Father, today, give us hope. In Jesus' name, amen.